for our 20th annual Constitution Day Conference. My name is Ilya Shapiro, and I'm Vice President and Director of the Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies. I'm also the publisher of the Cato Supreme Court Review, the 20th volume of which you can buy at cato.org uh, or download the articles for free. Thanks to the George M. Yeager Family Foundation, whose generosity allows us to produce this symposium and journal. Of course, the fact that we can even have an in-person event, I'm glad that, that there are actually people in the audience right here in addition to the hordes uh, online. Um, this marks a bit of a return to normal, or perhaps a new normal, as COVID-19 becomes an endemic part of our lives. We may still be dealing with uh, lingering mask mandates and other restrictions of dubious constitutionality, let alone policy wisdom, but at least vaccines and therapeutics allow most of us to live our lives essentially as in the before times. And the Supreme Court is also returning to an in-person argument format, though not yet open to anyone beyond staff, counsel, and the media. Today's the day when we review the Supreme Court term just passed and preview the next one, finishing up with the annual B. Kenneth Simon lecture, which this year will be given by Vice Dean Rachel Barkow of NYU School of Law. After that, we'll have our traditional rooftop reception, and those in virtual land are, of course, welcome to treat yourself from your own liquor cabinet. We hold this event on September 17th because on this day, 234 years ago, the framers completed the Constitution in Philadelphia and sent it to the states for ratification. Liberty through limited government animated the Declaration of Independence, while the Constitution set out to make a more perfect union that would better secure and protect liberty. Later, we saw what's called the completion of the Constitution in the second founding of the post-Civil War amendments, though that was largely thwarted by a Supreme Court unwilling to defend individual rights against state violation. Then, after a rebirth of economic liberty in the Lochner era, we had a constitutional reworking without amendment during the New Deal. The critique of that inversion has nominated, sorry, has animated our center. And you can read about that dynamic in my own book, Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations, and the Politics of America's Highest Court, which was released less than a year ago and is still available on Amazon and elsewhere. To give an overview of the conference, let me introduce the man largely responsible for it, Trevor Burris. Trevor is a research fellow at Cato and editor-in-chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review. He's also the editor of two books, A Conspiracy Against Obamacare and Deep Commitments, The Past, Present, and Future of Religious Liberty. And he co-hosts Free Thoughts, a weekly podcast on libertarian theory, history, and philosophy. Trevor first came to Cato as an intern right after graduating from the University of Denver Sturm College of Law over a decade ago, and we've been stuck with him ever since. I'll turn the program over to him now, but we'll return at the end of the day to introduce Vice Dean Barkow. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, Ilya. It is a pleasure to be actually here. Uh, this is my 11th Constitution Day, including the one when I was an intern. Um, and uh, what a difference a year makes. I guess last year I was bald uh, voluntarily um, and 60 pounds heavier and doing this from my dining room table. So this is much better uh, than it was last year. Um, a, year ago, a year ago, too, we were facing a presidential election that we didn't know would end up 
into a shameful debacle, although some of us might have suspected, um, and Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was still alive. Uh, she died the day after Constitution Day on September 18th, 2020. So the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett to Ginsburg's seat was difficult, although probably not as contentious as Justice Kavanaugh's. And now we have a new court, a 6-3 conservative Republican-appointed majority is certainly a very different thing than a 5-4 Republican-appointed majority. So what do we learn in this past year, aside from the lessons of working from home, maybe a pandemic hobby, gardening, knitting, mine was buying synthesizers and making a discotheque in my house. We also learned that people who own tigers are crazy. Uh, we, learned that, we also learned that justices are judges and not politicians. We learned you can get nine justices to agree on a religious liberty case, but only six to agree on a donor privacy case, uh, both of which will be discussed on this panel, hopefully. Um, we learned that while Chief Justice Roberts had power as the swing justice, that power maybe has diminished as Justice Barris joined the court. Although I'm not sure that is the case, as I think, especially over the decisions in the final months of the term, we saw Chief Justice Roberts, I think, fingerprints over a lot of the coalition building that he was striving for. Professor Laycock? Oh, you, oh. <laughs> um, <clears throat> we've learned that telephonic oral arguments are, in some ways, better. Um, I'd have to ask the advocates, uh, maybe some people in this room who've done it, but the serial questioning often makes for more substantive legal uh, discussions and less showboating. Uh, one wonders if Justice Scalia would be able to interrupt the word it with a question on telephonic oral arguments. Oral arguments, as Ilya said, will be back in person for the coming term, albeit with an empty courtroom or a mostly empty courtroom. It'll be interesting to see if any of the justices change their style uh, based on what they experienced in the last term. We've also learned that pandemics can be devastating with only over 670,000 Americans dead and untold costs in so many ways. So I very much thank you for being here and for the speakers for being here, many of whom traveled from out of state. As the pandemic continues, we try to establish some, some, some sense of normalcy at Cato in a let's not let the virus win kind of way. And Cato will be reopening in full on Monday. So this is a good dry run for what we're going to be doing. Um, I'd like to thank some important people, Roger Pallon, who I did not see yet this morning, uh, who founded the department and gave me my job out of the internship. Uh, without Roger, I would be a libertarian ranting in bars, practicing corporate law in Denver. Um, I'm still a libertarian ranting in bars, but I get to work at the Cato Institute. So, <clears throat> And of course, Ilya Shapiro, who I've been, been one of my partners I partnered with on so many briefs that I'm, I don't even know the count at this point and now directs the department uh, with skill. Clark Neely is a somewhat newly minted vice president of legal affairs uh, and someone who is a tireless champion of human liberty and justice. My associate editors, Will Yateman, you'll see later, Tommy Berry, Walter Olson, and Ilya, and also our excellent legal associates who helped us with all the site checking and nit finding, which trust me is a whirlwind endeavor when you try and publish a law, law journal in five weeks. That would be Spencer Davenport, Stacey Hansen, Navid Rajendran, Mallory Reeder, Christian Townsend, and legal interns Madeline Brooks and Richard Freidel. And last but definitely not least, Sam Spiegelman, who will be representing the audience questions all day, uh, who is an excellent editor and attention to detail. I'd like to thank Linda, Kiana, and the conference staff who have been trying to do something this year, it is definitely not in their job description originally, including remote events and David Tassie for doing the technical. And of course, the authors, I don't know if there's a general award you can give to Supreme Court Review groups of authors who all go under their word limits. 
definitely last year's was did not get that reward, but all of you get that reward this year. Um, so this is another edition of the Cato Supreme Court Review. Uh, for some housekeeping, due to DC restrictions, you have to wear your mask at all times, even when asking a question. Bathrooms are up the spiral staircase and down the spiral staircase. There's also one next to the elevator, but that's only a single bathroom, so I wouldn't advise queuing up for that one. Lunch will be served in the George M. Yeager Conference Center at noon, and as Ilya mentioned, if we survive rain, the reception. The hashtag Cato SCOTUS is how you can ask questions on Twitter. And of course, as we say, the reception will be after Professor Barkow's lecture. So moving to our first panel, uh, we're going to start with the way it's listed in the program. I'd like to introduce, just in time, uh, Professor Douglas Laycock, the Robert E. Scott Distinguished Professor at the University of Virginia School of Law. The rest of the bios that are extensive for all of our speakers are in the review and in your packet. Uh, Professor Laycock will be discussing the Fulton case. Professor Laycock. Well, I apologize. The last email I got said 1045, and I thought I was in plenty of time. Um, so I am uh, describing uh, Fulton versus Philadelphia, which has very little relevance in the way of holding, although more than you might guess, uh, it's uh, all an opinion about signs and omens and portents with respect to Employment Division versus Smith. Smith was the 1990 case in which Justice Scalia uh, cut back on the free exercise clause, but Smith announced two rules, one of which has gotten lots of attention, the other which got very little until recently. Um, Smith said, uh, <clears throat> If a law is neutral and generally applicable, uh, it raises no free exercise issue as applied to religion. It does not matter how severe the burden is. Um, Smith itself involved the central ritual of a worship service. It does not matter how trivial the government's interest is. There's just no issue, and the government doesn't need a reason. Um, and the second rule is, but if the law is not neutral and generally applicable, then it is subject to the compelling interest test as before. And whatever you think about the merits of the Smith rules, this is one of the worst opinions in the history of the Supreme Court. Everything is done in parentheticals and subordinate clauses and uh, qualifications. There's no clear announcement of the rule. And there's very little about what counts as a neutral and generally applicable law. Um, and uh, the rhetoric of the opinion is as though everything is neutral and generally applicable. But the details of the opinion are if it's got an exception, it's not generally applicable. Um, and I've been pounding on that for 30 years now, and no one paid any attention uh, in the academic world until pretty recently. Lower court opinions began to change after 1993. From 90 to 93, everything was neutral and generally applicable. A law that excluded churches by name was neutral and generally applicable because they thought it didn't have a bad motive. But after Church of the Lukumi in 1993, the lower courts began to say, you know, Smith was not a repealer of the free exercise clause. Lots of things that have exceptions are not generally applicable. Uh, and now uh, the conservatives in the Supreme Court have caught on to that idea and abused it and way overextended it in the uh, COVID cases um, where churches treated just like lecture halls and concert halls and theaters um, are analogized instead to grocery stores. Um, but um, the protective part of Smith, that rules that have exceptions are not generally applicable and are subject to compelling interest analysis, has gotten uh, a lot more attention lately. Chief Justice Roberts decided Fulton on that ground. Um, and the details of how he found an exception don't matter because they will never, ever arise again in the same way. 
uh, Philadelphia had a drafting problem. It had not anticipated this dispute. It thought it had absolutely banned discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. Um, but in this context, it really hadn't. Part of its problem was that um, for some, if you're, it was a case about placing foster children with foster parents or abandoned and abused children with foster parents. Some of the criteria on which we normally ban discrimination actually matter in that context. Right? You can't place a gay child with an anti-gay family, most obviously, or perhaps vice versa. Um, and so Philadelphia had real problems on general applicability. The path the court picked out uh, depends on details of the Philadelphia law that will never arise in quite the same way again. Some other things the chief said in the course of that holding do matter, will arise again. Let me just tick some off. Um, however it happened, however he got there, they protected a core teaching of the Catholic Church. We don't, um, we don't believe in same-sex relationships. We think they're sinful. We think they're bad for children. We don't uh, place children there. And unanimously, the court said that belief was protected at least against the Philadelphia law with its drafting difficulties. Um, Second, the court, Philadelphia actually had never made an exception that was relevant to uh, sexual orientation discrimination in the placing of children, but they explicitly reserved the right to do so. The contract said we can make exceptions, and the court said that's enough. Reserving the right to make exception makes the law not generally applicable. Whether or not you have ever made an exception and whether or not you swear to us on however many Bibles that you never will uh, make an exception. Um, and that makes sense because reserving the right to uh, make exceptions reserves the right to discriminate. Yeah. They can refuse an exception to the church without having to worry that there might someday arise a, a more sympathetic case from their perspective where they would be precluded from making an exception. They reserve the right. It's kind of like um, unguided discretion in the free speech context. <clears throat> um, Third, the court said it doesn't matter if this arises in the context of awarding government contracts. Oh. Um, it doesn't matter if this arises in the context of awarding government contracts. The government can't discriminate on the basis of religion there either. Uh, and finally, unanimously, no compelling interest here. Protecting uh, the LGBT community from discrimination is very important, but um, it's Philadelphia hasn't treated as a compelling interest if it reserved the right to make uh, exceptions. Uh, and, and finally, this is less holding than simply a characterization, significant because unanimous. The church here only seeks to practice its own beliefs. It does not seek to impose those beliefs on others. Much of the rhetoric in this context has been, whenever you seek an exemption, you're trying to impose your belief on whoever it is you're dealing with. Where it says, no, that's not right. We're trying to make room for both sides uh, to have space to live according to their own uh, beliefs and values. Um, <laughs> omens and prognostication. Five votes that Smith was wrongly decided. Um, Alito wrote a 77-page concurrence. It was probably originally a majority that he lost uh, to explaining why Smith should be overruled. Um, Barrett and Kavanaugh said Smith was wrong, but we're not sure what to replace it with, and we're not eager to overrule it until we figure that out. Uh, in addition, Justice Breyer, 25 years ago, and Bernie uh, said Smith should be reconsidered. 
Roberts has joined such opinions on, on occasion in certain now cases. Um, so five, possibly six, possibly seven votes to reconsider Smith when they're finally forced to do it. There are two cases in the docket, Diocese of Albany, about whether Catholic institutions have to cover abortion in their employee insurance plans, and Dignity Health, a case from California about a Catholic hospital that refused to permit a transgender surgical operation. Uh, those may well be laws without exceptions. Those may well be on the long conference at the end of the month. Um, and so the court may have to face up to this issue sooner rather than later. Um, what I mostly want to talk about is Justice Barrett's question, what replaces Smith? Um, she wants to think that through further, which is, of course, perfectly understandable. Some of us have been thinking about that question for a long time. Uh, generally, the compelling interest test should be what replaces Smith. That's what protects any other, should, uh, is what protects any other uh, fundamental right. Uh, free exercise is a fundamental First Amendment right like uh, all the others. Um, some exceptions to that are obviously possible, uh, but that should be the general standard. Uh, the problem with intermediate scrutiny, apart from being lower on its face, is the compelling interest test has been under-enforced. And intermediate scrutiny would be equally under-enforced, except starting from a lower base. Think about, uh, she didn't cite this, may have alluded to it, United States v. O'Brien on burning your draft card to protest the Vietnam War. That was nominally intermediate scrutiny. It required a substantial government interest. And the interest they accepted barely would have passed rational basis context in some other, some other context. Um, it's important that you keep your draft card and not burn it, because if you forget where your draft office is, it will remind you it has the address. That's not quite as crazy as it sounds well, decades before the internet, but it's pretty crazy. It's not a substantial government interest. So, uh, review will be watered down. That has been the experience. Even under the compelling interest test, the government has won a majority of free exercise cases. Uh, intermediate scrutiny will be watered down even uh, further. Um, the compelling interest test is not strict in theory and fatal in fact and has not been for a long time. Free exercise involves conduct, and there is more good reasons for government to regulate conduct. Uh, than to regulate speech or to permit racial discrimination. Um, so yeah, government will win, legitimately win, more free exercise cases under the compelling uh, interest test. Um, Justice Barrett may have been thinking about the time, place, and manner speech cases. Um, if the government regulates where you can speak or when you can speak, but leaves open ample alternative means of communication, that is subject to much more deferential review, doesn't get the compelling interest test. Um, and that makes sense. Uh, but it doesn't apply to many free exercise cases because there are not typically ample alternative means of practicing the religious practice at issue. And the fact that you can practice some other religious practice doesn't matter. The church says it's, it's against our faith, it is sinful for us to place children in same-sex families doesn't matter to say, well, you can still say the mass, you can still have communion, you can still build churches, you can still do all these other things. Yeah, well, Catholics do a lot of things. Uh, and religious practices are not fungible, and the ability to practice one is not a substitute for the other, as the court said in Holt v. Hobbs, a prisoner case just a, a, a few years ago. It's like saying uh, ample alternative means of communication means you can spread some other message. Uh, no, that doesn't count. You have to be able to spread the same message in alternative channels and forums, and you have to be able to engage in the same 
religious practice. Religious practices are not uh, fungible. Um, secular exceptions uh, still matter, uh, because even if the court overrules Smith, because they undermine the state's claim of a compelling government interest. You didn't think it was compelling over there. You didn't think you, it was impossible to grant an exception over there. Why is it impossible to grant uh, a religious exception? Um, some cases have to be treated differently, always have been. If your religious claim aligns too closely with secular self-interest, uh, the government, one way to put it is the government has a compelling interest in disallowing that because it will invite too many phony claims and it will encourage too many people to convert to the religion. If you could get an exemption for paying taxes because it was against your religion to pay them, the whole libertarian community and the Republican Party would convert in a heartbeat, and a lot of Democrats wouldn't be very far behind. And so the court rejects those claims, right? No one's ever won a tax exemption case on a constitutional uh, theory. Um, some of these, uh, uh, finally, one last point. Uh, compelling interest test works best if it is understood as a balancing test uh, with uh, a heavy thumb on the side of the constitutional right. And often the court has characterized it just that, just that way. Um, and um, that gives it a flexibility. Uh, it gives the court the ability to deal with individual circumstances. Context matters to the compelling interest test, the court has said on, on multiple occasions. Um, so it is not uh, such a scary prospect to overrule Smith and apply uh, the compelling interest test to all substantial government burdens on the exercise of religion. Um, I think Justice Barrett will eventually come to that conclusion. She's already said she thinks Smith was wrongly decided, uh, but we will see, and we may see sooner uh, rather than later. Thank you, Professor Laycock. Um, maybe you'll be able to argue the case that overturns Smith. <laughs> Uh, next, we'll be hearing from Bradley A. Smith, the Josiah H. Blackmore II, Shirley M. Nault Professor at Capital University Law School, former commissioner on the Federal Election Commission and chairman, former chairman of the commission, uh, and formerly of the Center for Competitive Politics, Institute for Free Speech, um, leading of that, which is relevant to the case that he'll be discussing, which is America's for Prosperities Foundation versus Harris Bonta, <laughs> Harris slash Bonta. So, Brad? <clears throat> <clears throat> thank you, uh, Trevor, and thanks, uh, folks, for coming out live and tuning in on Zoom. Uh, and it's nice to be able to be at the podium because I can take my mask off for, for a few minutes to uh, deliver this, this talk. Um, by the way, I appreciate you giving us all credit for coming in under our word length. I went through two drafts of that article that kept going way over the word length, and finally I looked at the guidelines again and realized I was underestimating my, what I had to write work with my 5,000 words. Thank you, so at that point, it was easy, finally. <laughs> In any case, um, so uh, Americans for Prosperity versus Harris, ni Becerra, ni Rodriguez, ni Bonta uh, is uh, a major victory, I think, for the right of uh, association in the Supreme Court. Uh, but at a bigger level, it also is an important statement on the general relationship that ought to exist between the people and the government, or between the government and the people, however you want to look at it. Uh, this right was of uh, association, the right to associate anonymously, to keep your associations private from the government and from others, was first explicitly recognized in NAACP versus Alabama, 
This is a 1958 case. Uh, and in it, the state of Alabama, as essentially part of the massive resistance to Brown versus Board of Education, had launched an investigation into business practices of the NAACP. And they asked uh, uh, the NAACP, as part of their investigation, they subpoenaed a list of all members and, and donors to the organization. Uh, and the organization was quite understandably concerned that the state would either accidentally or intentionally, probably the latter, uh, let this list escape out into the general public where many of these people might be uh, harassed, uh, threatened, uh, even subjected to uh, physical violence, all of which were very realistic possibilities uh, at the time in the Deep South. Over the next several years, and, and the Supreme Court, by the way, to be clear, said, no, you can't require that. Uh, you would have to show at a minimum that it's really germane to the investigation that you're undertaking. Over the next several years, the Supreme Court uh, expanded this right in a number of cases, many of which, although not all of which, were uh, cases out of the civil rights movement. Some also involved uh, the Red Scare efforts to force, for example, teachers to declare all of their past affiliations over a period of as long as five years, any group they'd belong to or a meeting had attended, that sort of thing. Uh, and, and so by the late 1960s, there was a pretty strongly uh, uh, entrenched right to keep your associations private, including an important case, Talley versus California, which noted that it wasn't really necessary to produce what the NAACP had in terms of a long record of harassment of your supporters. It was merely enough that this kind of harassment uh, should be uh, plausible. Uh, and, and that would require the state, of course, to come up with some strong legitimate reason to request the information. It was not that the state could never get it, but it just couldn't go around asking for it as a general point of, of uh, investigation or of law. Then came the political cases, however. In 1974, Congress passed amendments to the Federal Election Campaign Act. And although the, the federal election laws had long required some disclosure of, of political contributions, there had never really been an enforcement mechanism. It had never really been taken seriously by anybody. After 1974, political actors had to take it seriously. And so what that did was uh, bring a challenge in the Supreme Court to a number of provisions of the Federal Election Campaign Act. The plaintiffs in that case did not directly challenge, however, the broad scope of uh, disclosing political contributions. Uh, rather, they challenged uh, only uh, the, uh, uh, the law as it pertained to minor parties, the idea that it wasn't really necessary for parties who weren't going to elect anybody anyway. And in certain cases, they challenged the, the breadth of the law. The scope of the law at issue in the Federal Election Campaign Act was you had to disclose any speech relative to a clearly identified candidate, uh, an extremely, obviously, broad uh, category that could take in almost everything that people want to, uh, want to talk about. And so the Supreme Court there upheld disclosure. And thus, you ended up with sort of two tracks going off. You had the NAACP track saying people have a right to keep their you know, activities private uh, from a nosy government. And you had the political track saying people did not have a right to keep their activities private from a nosy government. Now, these two can be reconciled largely because the political track, uh, the Buckley track, was based on the idea that this was specifically related to political campaigns and the discussion of candidates, very narrowly defined. Uh, it, it applied to candidate campaigns, political parties, and PACs, and it applied to other groups that would specifically advocate for the election or defeat of a candidate by saying things like vote for, vote against, defeat, support. Anything less did not get you that kind of disclosure. So ever since Buckley, uh, 
the, the Supreme Court case in, in the Federal Election Campaign Act, the goal of people who want to regulate more political speech has been to try to expand this definition of political speech to, to include more activity within the definition of political speech. Now note that what the NAACP was doing and what was done in these other cases as well, uh, without going into detail on all of them, certainly was politically related, right? I mean, the NAACP was leading the fight for civil rights in the South. How could you possibly not say that in some broad colloquial sense that was political speech? But it wasn't what the Supreme Court meant in Buckley where it upheld the limits or where it upheld, yeah, the, the requirements of compulsory disclosure uh, by uh, referring to things directly related to trying to elect a candidate. Uh, and funds directly given to a candidate or to a political party. So this is what sets up uh, the issue in Bonta. Over time, uh, courts have become more and more lenient in allowing states to apply compulsory disclosure on people whose speech is only, only has an attenuated connection to political uh, uh, races. And that has particularly become the case since Citizens United v. Federal Election Commission in 2010, where there is some sloppy language by Justice Kennedy. He takes a, a sentence from Buckley and says, as we said in Buckley, and then he adds stuff that they didn't say in Buckley to it, and kind of gives this impression that, you can, that states maybe can require disclosure on an awful lot of things. And so we've begun to see that in recent years, um, pressure here. Courts begin to interpret it more as a, a, a rational basis type law. The court had used the term that it required exacting scrutiny in the past, but the courts began to interpret exacting scrutiny as meaning nothing more than that there be a substantial connection between the requirement for disclosure and uh, some state interest. Okay. Well, even given the way our legislatures often act, almost all laws have some connection <laughs> right, to some legitimate state interest, at least something that you can plausibly state with a reasonably straight face. And the courts were therefore almost always saying, well, there's a, there's a, a connection between the state interest and the disclosure, done, okay, the disclosure is, is fine, this enforced disclosure. And what we've seen over the last several years is an effort to keep pushing the boundaries here, uh, to create name and shame, to try to isolate people, to threaten them with retaliation. We see a lot of this unofficially in you know, Twitter mobs and efforts to get people fired from their jobs and so on. But we also see this officially. For example, uh, Senator Durbin sent out a letter to a large number of supporters of the American Legislative Exchange Council, which is a group of mostly conservative but bipartisan state legislators. Uh, demanding that they reveal if they gave to this group and if they supported certain positions that the group gave and telling them, by the way, we're going to call you out at a hearing at which we're going to prevent, present the mother of uh, Trayvon Martin, who you may recall was uh, killed uh, by a, uh, I, I guess we'll call him a vigilante, a uh, self-styled block watcher in an argument that the two had. Um, you had Elizabeth Warren demanding that think tanks, including center-left ones like the Brookings Institute, reveal who is funding these, these studies that are critical of my legislative proposals. Uh, we need to know. Why do we need to know? Uh, presumably so we can uh, bring them into line and let them know uh, who's boss here. I don't know. Uh, we shouldn't kid ourselves as to what's been going on here. And in fact, in the case, in uh, Bonta, uh, a group of Democratic senators filed a brief specifically saying that the information needed to be available 
so that they could flush out dark money from the political system. So what was the actual dispute in Bonta? Well, at one point, uh, when Kamala Harris was attorney general, she began demanding that uh, charities and other nonprofits submit to the state before they could solicit in California uh, uh, copies of their Schedule B that they submit to the IRS, and this is the form you submit to the IRS that includes the name of your large donors. Um, of course, California is where a lot of the money in the country is. New York, by the way, followed suit. So pretty soon, charities that would not disclose their donors to the attorney generals of New York and California could not solicit in those states, probably the two wealthiest states in the country and in the place where you find a great number of, of large donors. This was eventually challenged by Americans for Prosperity Foundation and the Thomas More uh, Legal Center. Uh, and uh, uh, these two uh, organizations won in the trial court lost in the Ninth Circuit, and eventually brought their claim to the Supreme Court. Again, the argument was that they have a right to keep their donors private unless the state has a need for the organization. Both groups con conceded that if the state were really investigating them for fraud or something or needed the information in some way, they could get it through an audit letter or a subpoena. It was just the bulk collection of this information from literally tens of thousands of charities that was problematic. Um, the, the decision of the court, I think, is very uh, appealing, uh, to me at least, for a, a number of, of reasons. First, the court was very sensitive to, and even mentioned uh, briefly, at least in the line, current developments of this sort of mob justice and people being hounded from jobs and businesses being boycotted and so on, for it is routine legal uh, speech. The court also noted uh, the broad array of amicus groups uh, that were involved in the case, groups that came in on the side of the charities, and they ranged from the Council on American-Islamic Relations to religious uh, Christian conservative groups. They ranged from Planned Parenthood to Right to Life chapters. Uh, it was an extremely broad uh, collection here. And so the court noted that this really is a, a sensitive issue. This was important because one of the positions of the state was there's no harm under the First Amendment at all. Why? Because we're just collecting the information for ourselves. We're not going to publish it. So it's not really disclosure, and there's no harm. Now, of course, I think many in this audience would be the kind who would say, wait a minute. The government's exactly the people I want to keep this information uh, from. That's who I want to, want to prevent from getting it. Um, so the court agreed on that point. The court agreed that it was not necessary that the state be planning to disclose the information publicly. In this position, by the way, the state's case was not helped by the fact that they actually had published about 1,800 of these forms, and another uh, couple hundred thousand of them were literally available on the web if you had a modest knowledge of how HTML addresses worked and uh, wanted to sit down and actually go through it, you could actually get into about a, hundred, a couple hundred thousand of these Schedule Bs that the uh, Attorney General of California was collecting. Uh, so the state wasn't helped by that, but they promised to do better, and the Ninth Circuit said, okay, that's fine, good, good enough for us. Um, good enough for the dissenters uh, as well in the Supreme Court, but not for the majority. And, and again, the majority's key point here wasn't so much that the state was releasing the information, it's that it didn't really matter whether the state was releasing the information. We might also consider the fact that even if the state's motives are pure today, they developed this huge data bank of information, they may not be pure tomorrow or under a succeeding administration that would have this type of information. Secondly, the court reiterated a point 
uh, that had drifted away, that exacting scrutiny required uh, narrow tailoring. Right now, this is not the strict scrutiny least restrictive means, but it does say that if the law substantially burdens activity that is unrelated to the state interest, you've got a problem. And here again, they're collecting hundreds of thousands of these forms under the vague assertion that they may need it for law enforcement if they want it to investigate somebody. Here again, the state's case as a factual matter was undercut by the fact that at trial, uh, the state had not been able to show that it had ever used these forms, not even once uh, that these forms had been necessary to instigate uh, an investigation of an organization. But nonetheless, that's, where they, uh, that's uh, what they argued. The key point here again is the Supreme Court says it doesn't really matter, right? It's, uh, you still have to narrowly tailor things, uh, even if you might have used it in some cases. And uh, the state, uh, the court then suggested that lower courts need to look skeptically at that asserted state interest. So when the state of California said, well, law enforcement, we might need it to investigate charities, the court said, no, you got to be kind of careful about that. Uh, you can't just do that uh, in this kind of broad fashion. The idea that it's maybe more convenient for you isn't enough. Administrative convenience won't do it. Um, and so with that, you put some real teeth into the exacting scrutiny standard. And it basically says now that, again, it's really none of the government's business who you give money to, what organizations you support or belong to. It may become the state's business if they have a legitimate investigation going on that requires them to actually get that information. But they can't just generally say that they need it or they want it or it will be convenient for them to have it. So let me close by getting to the, the point I mentioned earlier, that this goes, in a sense, to that greater relationship between people and the state. The state's position was sort of like, we're just asking you for information, just give it to us. And, and they really didn't argue that they needed much of a reason other than this vague, almost hand-waving, well, law enforcement, we have to enforce the law against charities, so they're charities, so they should have to give us the information. Um, and this is what the court rejects. And it is a relationship between the people and the government that I think is improper. It should be the other way around. Government has to justify why they want something from the people. And if the person's only response is, because I don't want to give it to you, that's good enough until the government actually presents a reason why it needs it. The person who is being asked to disclose doesn't have to show a record of harassment, doesn't have to show religious beliefs against flaunting their charity, doesn't have to show concern about being hassled by other people asking for funds. It's enough to just say, no, I don't want you to have it. Uh, so it is a big, uh, big win in that respect for privacy. And I want to uh, note by, by saying one argument that was made repeatedly by uh, many folks in the lower courts uh, was that uh, this was um, uh, necessary, you know, as a society to, to, we had to be bold. People needed to be held accountable. They frequently quoted the late uh, great Justice Antonin Scalia, who said in one of these cases, a case, by the way, relating specifically to overt political vote for, vote against activity, said, harsh criticism short of unlawful action is a price our people have traditionally been willing to pay for self-governance. Requiring people to stand up in public for their political acts fosters civic courage without which democracy is doomed. I do not look forward to society which campaigns anonymously, hidden from public scrutiny and protected from accountability and criticism. This does not resemble the home of the brave. Okay, and this was cited repeatedly, mainly by people who hated Justice Scalia and his jurisprudence in, in most aspects. But what I think is uh, important to note here, and why I think Justice Scalia was wrong and the court was right, is this simple proposition. Um, 
The Supreme Court, well, let's look at Antonin Scalia, for whom I have tremendous admiration, uh, whom I knew a little bit. I know people's family better. Uh, but Justice Scalia had an outgoing personality. He liked verbal combat. A lot of people shy away from that. Justice Scalia spent most of his adult life in jobs in which he could not be fired, and the last 30 years of his adult life in a job in which his pay could not be reduced. Nor did he ever have to worry about the effects of a boycott on his business leading to his employees becoming unemployed because of declining business or his shareholders losing money that maybe they were counting on for their pensions and that sort of thing. Uh, Justice Scalia was famous for chasing away his U.S. Marshals uh, when, he, when he traveled, but he was able to invoke the protection of U.S. Marshals anytime that it might be necessary. They did watch over the court and protect his workplace and so on. In other words, he was in a very, very unique position. And the other element here, the big element of this, is not just what is the relationship between people and the government, but who is the First Amendment for? Is the First Amendment only for the strong? Is it only for those who are willing to stand up and risk being fired from their jobs or being harassed on the streets or concerned about their family members being targeted? Or does the First Amendment also protect more ordinary citizens who have ideas that maybe we should hear in the public, who have thoughts that we should hear and positions that should be debated and discussed in the public? Is our society better off if those people are chased out of the realm of the public uh, sphere? I think the answer is pretty clearly no, and I think in this case, the Supreme Court gave ample support to that position. Thank you. Thank you very much, Brad. Next, we'll be hearing from Tommy Berry, who is pinch hitting for David Hudson, who wrote the article in the volume you have with you on the Mahonoi case, um, otherwise known as the cussing cheerleader case, which of course got a lot of, of press, uh, but we'll see if, what, how significant it actually might have been. Tommy? All right. Uh, thank you, Trevor. I am excited. Uh, this is my first opportunity to speak on a Cato Constitution Day panel. Uh, it is bittersweet because uh, Professor Hudson wasn't able to be here, but I will, as he said, try to pinch it as, as best I can. So this is Mahanoy. Uh, I like to call it the salty Snapchatting sophomore case. Uh, to understand it, I first have to give a brief history of the most important student speech case at the Supreme Court before Mahanoy, which was Tinker versus Des Moines School District from back in 1969. Uh, Tinker was about a group of Iowa public school students who planned to wear black armbands on their sleeves at school to protest the Vietnam War. The school found out about the protest, uh, found them in school, sent them home, told them they were suspended until they came back without the armbands. They sued, their case eventually reached the Supreme Court, and the court held that their suspension violated the students' First Amendment rights. In a memorable turn of phrase, Justice Abe Fortas wrote for the court, that, quote, it can hardly be argued that either students or teachers shed their constitutional rights to freedom of speech or expression at the schoolhouse gate, end quote. But the court also acknowledged the, quote, need for affirming the comprehensive authority of the states and of school officials, consistent with fundamental constitutional safeguards to prescribe and control conduct in the schools, end quote. The court described the student speech regulations as a collision between these two values. And that notion of free speech and school discipline as competing and conflicting values has really underlined the school speech cases ever since. So how did the court attempt to balance those values in Tinker? It announced a rule that a public school student may, quote, express his opinions 
even on controversial subjects like the conflict in Vietnam, if he does so without materially and substantially interfering with the requirements of appropriate discipline in the operation of the school. Applying this test to the black arm pro armband protest, the Tinker Court easily found the suspension was not justified. The court explained that there was no evidence that the armband protest had, in fact, disrupt, disrupted the work of the school or any class. And most importantly, the court rejected a theory that a generalized fear of potential disruption was sufficient justification for speech suppression. The court held that, quote, undifferentiated fear or apprehension of disturbance is not enough to overcome the right to freedom of expression, end quote. And the court explained schools, quote, need more than a mere desire to avoid the discomfort and unpleasantness that always accompany an unpopular viewpoint, end quote. Because there was no actual disturbance or a specific reason to expect a disturbance, the suspension violated the First Amendment. So ever since Tinker was decided, substantial disruption has been the linchpin of student speech cases. If schools can show that a statement or silent protest did in fact cause a substantial disruption, or that the school had a concrete and specific reason to believe that it would, then courts will generally uphold restrictions on that speech. But if not, students have a First Amendment right to speak their mind without the interference of public school officials, who are, lest we forget, government actors. But Tinker's substantial disruption test left two key unanswered questions. First, is there any implied reasonableness limitation to the reaction of listeners and the disruption that reaction may cause? Suppose a student makes a mildly controversial statement in school, but other students who hear it are so offended that they immediately raise a hue and cry, announcing that they are so psychologically wounded that they can't go on with their lessons that day. Well, the mildly controversial statement did in fact cause a substantial disruption. So if that's all that matters, then under Tinker, the principal could tell the student, don't ever make that mildly controversial statement again or you'll be sent to detention. But that certainly seems like a rule that would give a lot of power to listeners. It would tell students, if you don't like what someone else is saying, then raise as much of a ruckus as you can when you hear it. So some scholars have argued the Tinker Rule should carry or does carry an implied limitation to only disruptions that are reasonable reactions to the speech at issue. Disproportionate reactions, sometimes called the heckler's veto, shouldn't justify punishing speech. And the second key unanswered question was whether the Tinker Rule applies to student speech delivered outside the school environment. A school is, of course, a community, and a conversation between students off campus over the weekend can have repercussions later during school hours. In other words, it's plausible to imagine scenarios <clears throat> where speech off campus causes a disruption on campus. But if Tinker applied to speech off campus, students would never have a waking moment when they can know they are completely free of their school potentially monitoring and reviewing their speech. Controversial views posted on Facebook or Twitter from a student's bedroom could become the grounds for discipline days later. That potential chilling effect convinced some scholars that the Tinker Rule should not extend past the schoolhouse gates, at least not without some major caveats. And lower courts grappled with this question for years, generally holding that some off-campus speech could be punished for causing a substantial disruption on campus, but often adding additional requirements besides substantial disruption, such as that the speech also has to have been directed towards members of the school community, or had a reasonable likelihood of reaching the school, or dealt with issues closely related to the school. 
And that brings us to the case of Brandy Levy, who, by the way, in the court documents is referred to by just her initials BL because she was a minor at the time, but she has voluntarily chosen to be identified in the media. As a rising sophomore in Manoy City, Pennsylvania, Brandy tried out for the cheerling squad, but she only made junior varsity. She was frustrated with that and also unhappy with her position on a private softball team, and she was anxious about upcoming exams. So one Saturday, hanging out with a friend at the local Cocoa Hut, she pulled out her phone, took a selfie with the friend, raised their middle fingers, and posted it to Snapchat. She also added a vulgar caption, which I'll read verbatim, so those of you offended by profanity, shield your ears now, and please don't create a substantial disruption. The Snapchat read, quote, fuck school, fuck softball, fuck cheer, fuck everything, end quote. Brandy's cheer coaches found out about the snap. Brandy was suspended from JV cheer for the full year, and she sued. Reviewing Brandy's case, the Third Circuit decided that they were going to be the first circuit to establish a categorical bright line rule for off-campus student speech. The Third Circuit held that Tinker does not apply to off-campus speech at all. Whether it causes a substantial disruption on campus or not, the court held that off-campus speech is off-limits for discipline, unless it falls into some other First Amendment exception. The court suggested that off-campus physical threats of violence or harassment would likely fall under such exceptions, true threats and the like, but it left those details for another day. Because Brandy's snap was made outside of school, the Third Circuit held the school could not punish her for it, whether or not it caused a disruption, and it declined to uh, make a ruling on that factual question. Well, this was quite a categorical ruling, the most, ever by a circuit, most categorical ever by a circuit court on this issue, and perhaps for that reason, the Supreme Court took the case up for review. By a vote of eight to one, the Supreme Court affirmed the Third Circuit's judgment that Brandy's punishment was unconstitutional, but it did not affirm the Third Circuit's categorical rule. Instead, in an opinion by Justice Stephen Breyer, who is often fond of multi-factor balancing tests rather than bright line rules, including in his own personal life, the court opted to provide only general guidelines for how lower courts should approach off-campus speech cases in the future. First, the court declined to foreclose the application of Tinker to off-campus speech in every instance, holding that the reasons justifying Tinker do not, quote, always disappear when a school regulates speech that takes place off-campus, end quote, the court suggested, without limiting itself to the examples offered, that some circumstances potentially calling for regulation of off-campus speech might include bullying classmates, threats aimed at teachers or other students, cheating or otherwise breaking the rules on school assignments, and breaches of school security devices. Then, in the crux of the opinion, the court identified three features of off-campus speech that, in the court's words, diminished the strength of the unique educational characteristics that might call for special First Amendment leeway to regulate speech. The first of these three features is that, quote, off-campus speech will normally fall within the zone of parental rather than school-related re responsibility. And this point, by the way, was emphasized in Cato's amicus brief, which argued that punishment of off-campus speech should be left entirely to parents and, if necessary, to law enforcement. The second feature is that, by definition, off-campus speech includes, quote, all the speech a student utters during a full 24-hour day, end quote. Regulating only on-campus speech means a student can wait to step off the school bus and then speak their piece. Regulating speech off-campus, by contrast, quote, may mean the student cannot engage in that kind of speech at all, end quote. 
In the court's words, that means judges, quote, must be more skeptical of a school's efforts to regulate off-campus speech, end quote, and this skepticism should be ratcheted up even further when political or religious speech is at issue, at which court point courts should impose, quote, a heavy burden to justify intervention, end quote. And the third and final feature is that public schools have a, quote, interest in protecting a student's unpopular expression, end quote. In other words, the mere fact that speech is unpopular with other classmates is not a justification for schools to restrict it. If anything, it's the reasons why schools should be especially vigilant to protect it. Applying these guidelines to the facts at hand, the court easily found that the school was not justified in punishing Brandy for her single snap. Indeed, the court strongly suggested that even if Brandy had said the same things on campus, it would not have met Tinker's substantial disruption standard. Judge Thomas Ambro of the Third Circuit had concurred in the judgment below on those narrower grounds, and the Supreme Court noted that its reasons resembled those of the Third Circuit panel's concurring opinion. At the Supreme Court, in a concurrence, Justice Alito, joined by Justice Gorsuch, stressed that public schools only have the right to regulate student speech to the extent that parents have impliedly consented to that regulation by enrolling their children. Alito stressed that such implied consent is much less likely for off-campus contexts, where parents themselves retain control and supervision of their children. In a solo dissent, Justice Thomas argued that the court's student speech doctrine, going all the way back to Tinker, is not consistent with the original understanding of the First or Fourteenth Amendment. Thomas argued that the right of schools to regulate students in place of their parents, or in lawyer Latin, in loco parentis, was an accepted doctrine at the time of the founding with few limitations, and that the First Amendment was not understood to create any such limitations on that doctrine, and the Fourteenth Amendment was not in, understood to apply those limitations to the states. So where does Mahanoy leave us? Overall, it's of course a win for student speech. It should not go unappreciated that this is the first time since Tinker that the Supreme Court has actually invalidated a school's punishment of student speech. After Tinker, uh, students at the Supreme Court were on an 0-3 losing streak. Going forward, the guidelines that the court established mean that students speaking off campus should rarely have their speech curtailed. But nonetheless, the hesitancy of the court to establish any bright line rule not even that regulating off-campus political or religious speech is categorically out of bounds is disappointing. As the court has recognized in other contexts, bright line rules avoid the chilling effect that can come from uncertainty and even a remote possibility that speech might be punished. While the opinion provides public school students many reassurances, it doesn't provide them any certainties. In addition, the opinion was a missed opportunity to address the heckler's veto problem, something that Justice Kagan had suggested in oral argument it might be appropriate to clarify. Had the court made clear that overreactions to speech can't justify discipline, that alone would have allayed the fear that students might be punished for controversial Facebook posts or off-campus political speeches somewhere. But perhaps one unexpected benefit <clears throat> of this case is that in, in the briefing, the court was made aware of many examples of recent lower court decisions that arguably did allow a heckler's veto. Even though addressing that issue wasn't necessary to decide this case, it's possible that the heckler's veto question could be the subject of the next big student speech case at the Supreme Court. Thank you. Thank you, Tommy. Uh, excellent job of pinch hitting.
Who's the most successful pinch hitter in the, his, in the history of the major leagues? Lou Gehrig for Wally Pipp. Okay, see. <laughs> yeah, we'll call him Lou Gehrig. Technically least, not pinch hitting. It was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wally Pipp had a headache that day. I think Edgar Martinez might have. Anyway, <laughs> uh, we're going to open up for questions in a second. I'm going to take some moderator's privilege uh, before Kirk we Gibson, get. that's a good one. Ilya says Kirk Gibson. Kirk Gibson. On two oh, yeah. bad legs. Yeah, yeah. yeah. on two bad legs. Um, I'd first like to ask one for Professor Laycock. Um, are you optimistic that if they're the next case, is there a single step to overturning Smith now, or is it going to take an, an intermediate step of some sort to try and rectify, or at least maybe Justice Barrett's hesitancy? Um, I don't know the answer to that. You know, it, it's, it's a commonplace. Sometimes they squarely overrule, and sometimes they nibble away for years until it doesn't mean anything anymore. Uh, and they could take either path here. They've been nibbling, right? And, and they've, and you know, I'm, I may be the biggest academic defender in the country of the view that if there's a secular exception, there has to be a religious exception. In my view, they've carried that too far. They used secular exceptions that were not analogous in some of the COVID church cases. Um, that was the tool they had to work with, and they and they made it work. They could they could keep up that process until. Uh, the unprotective rule of Smith doesn't mean much of anything anymore. Um, the cost of that is that it, it it leaves arguments for government lawyers to make. It vastly complicates every case. Uh, they don't have standards about what's analogous and what isn't, or they do, but it's not very clear. Um, and so it would be much better if they just flat overruled. And um, you know, for years, lawyers going up there chose to argue within Smith rather than to ask for overruling. Um, I think now there are enough uh, tea leaves towards overruling, and and these upcoming cases have so few exceptions, maybe no exceptions at all, really, that are analogous. Um, you know, the the pressure to actually overrule is going to get uh, a lot greater, and the argument will be more fully developed, more squarely presented. But how they will react, I, I don't have a clear prediction. Thank you. Uh, for Brad, when I was doing media on Americans for Prosperity Foundation. Uh, uh, mostly what I got was sky is falling campaign finance questions, as I'm sure you probably did too. Um, now, that being said, there are some language in the opinion, such as the, the now this says has teeth, uh, that says that we might be able to challenge some more literal political, quote-unquote, political campaign under the standard. Do you think some of those could be fruitful? I, I don't think that uh, uh, Bonta really gets at campaign finance things. This was raised, this, this was the great boogeyman. And it's interesting to note that even while the state of California was arguing in court that it had no intention of making any of this information public, it was arguing to the IRS that they needed to keep Schedule B because uh, it was valuable in fighting dark money. Well, the only way you can fight dark money, which is, by the way, perfectly legal to spend, and, and therefore there's no need for a criminal investigation or anything, the only way you can fight dark money is by making the information public. So <laughs> it's interesting that you had that little dichotomy there. But the court has traditionally upheld campaign finance laws on two grounds that were not here uh, in this case. One is that it helps voters to spot potential corruption. They see you got a large contribution from somebody and then you changed your vote or something like that. Uh, and the other is what the court has called an informational interest. Uh, and again, if the state is promising not to reveal the information anyway, then there's not really an informational interest at stake. I think that um, 
By the way, this informational interest has been largely misunderstood. It is not a broad uh, right of voters to know. It's not so voters can hold people accountable for what they've done. As stated in Buckley v. Vallejo, it was very, very clearly an interest in helping voters to determine how a person would act in office. That is, if a person was getting campaign finance support from, say, the National Rifle Association, then they probably really were pro-gun. Uh, if they were getting support from Planned Parenthood's PAC or whatever, then they probably really were pro-choice. It wasn't this kind of broad, who cares. So there might be some like disclosure thresholds in campaign finance that are very low. Some states have $10, $20 uh, thresholds for disclosing. Might be an argument that this is really not necessary to the state's compelling interest is not, uh, or to the state's substantial interest, I should say, is not uh, 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 narrowly tailored. But I think the core of campaign finance law, that is disclosure of large contributions to political campaigns and parties, is, is pretty safe for the time being. And one more for Tommy. Now, it seems to me that everything got, in the last, since the advent of social media, things are getting much stranger when it comes to off-campus versus on-campus speech. And due to the multi-factor balancing test, it seems to me that the next case will come very quickly. Like to the court, uh, would you agree? Like that, because it, we, we haven't resolved much, and who knows what even the next, you know, TikTok, Snapchat, Instagram, whatever comes next, it's going to integrate the off campus and on campus in a way that we need to lie. Sure. And I mean, uh, it's also ironic that this case was decided in an era when so many public school students were doing online speech or online school. Yeah. So literally, there was no in-person thing. Or no schoolhouse gates. And, and even as many of the briefers noted, like off-campus, on-campus is, a, is a, a generalized and not really ideal way to describe this distinction. I like to think of it more as like in the school context versus not in the school context. Because really the point of Tinker was are other students a captive audience to you? Like the, like the, the, you know, the quintessential example of a tinker violation is standing up in the middle of algebra class and giving a political diatribe. And so the court, you can't do that, right? But the on-campus, off-campus, I think, is too, is too generalized because say a student has their phone under their desk in math class and they post something to Snapchat. I don't really think that should qualify as on-campus because the other students around him or her aren't forced to read that during algebra class. It's not the same thing as yelling out with a bullhorn or something like that. And so, yes, I agree. I think the Supreme Court is unlikely to take another case. They've basically told lower courts, look, don't make a categorical rule like the Third Circuit did. Work this out case by case. But in fact, we just filed an amicus brief, um, Cato and uh, Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, in a Tenth Circuit case um, on a similar, a similar issue also about Snapchat. And so again, and, and this was uh, one where someone made a stupid, stupid uh, joke, uh, Holocaust joke, and apologized to the local Jewish community and was very penitent, but nonetheless um, was expelled. And so again, there, um, question, uh, courts are going to have to draw the line of like, how offensive does something have to be? And does it matter if students like, through their parents or through outside the school realm can be sufficiently disciplined without the school needing to step in? I should have mentioned that I once got punished in high school for wearing a shirt with profanity on it, and I strongly considered making a federal case of it, but I did not. Um, okay, over here, uh, we're going to open up here. Sam, you, uh, can you queue up the next one? We just keep one. Or actually, I'll go to you first. Yeah, from the from the internets. 
Uh, we do not yet have any internet's questions. We don't have any internet's questions. Okay. Not well, internet's people, hashtag Kato Scotus, ask us questions. Not from any the that are uh, discernible. <laughs> <laughs> from the tubes, send them forth. Uh, over here, thank you, Nicole. <clears throat> Snap your grams, send them forth. Can I get questions on Snapchat? Is that a thing? I don't, know. I don't think Snapchat, so. I, is this Snapchat totally passe? Can we run questions for ourselves? Uh, yeah, that too, yeah. We'll, we'll open that up for you. Kids, ask for your parents' Twitter account. Yes, sir. Um, I think, I, I can't tell. Try again. Can you hear me? Is it on? Um, I think, you try it again, Nicole. Just check it. Here's. Well, I, how, how far, how close do you have to hold There you go. There you go. Okay. Yeah. Hey, um, Pat's fan, retired, government guy. I was wondering, what is the status of, I think it was called the Johnson Amendment in the mid-50s, where supposedly uh, church, he was trying to protect, uh, LBJ was trying to protect himself from uh, uh, reverends and priests, um, that a church could lose their um, tax-exempt uh, tax status if they did political speech. Does that still exist? And I've always been a little surprised that you never hear about it being enforced or challenged. But I know it exists. Uh, it, it, it still exists, um, is rarely enforced. Um, if a church spends a big chunk of money and buys uh, full-page ads endorsing a candidate, it will be enforced against them. That's happened once in a reported case. Um, but if the church simply, um, in the course, ordinary course of activities of the minister endorses a candidate from the pulpit, or if uh, you know the church lay group uh, organizes a a get out the vote drive with a bias in favor of one party or the other. Uh, the IRS doesn't do anything with that. And I think, I think they shouldn't. I think they're afraid to litigate the constitutionality of censoring sermons. Um, in 2004, uh, Alliance Defending Freedom uh, organized a bunch of evangelical ministers to endorse candidates from the pulpit, videotape themselves doing it, and send the tapes to the IRS. They were trying to revoke a test case. The IRS didn't bite. Um, and that was kind of the end of enforcing the Johnson Amendment. Uh, the Republicans in Congress tried to repeal it a couple of years ago. That didn't go anywhere either. Uh, but you know, it, it, it's not quite a dead letter, but very close. That's almost better than the civil disobedience in Cohen v. California. Um, I have over here on that side, Nick. David Sobelson, uh, Press Associates. I'd like to ask uh, Professor Smith if Schedule B is constitutional. <laughs> uh, well, the, the court in uh, Bonta specifically makes a line that uh, talking about tax matters and so the the argument Schedule B, by the way, by the IRS's own. Uh, rulemaking on it late in the Trump administration, the, the IRS did away with Schedule B filings for all but C3 organizations. And the argument one can make for C3 organizations, at least, is that, well, the donor is getting a tax deduction, so we need to see the information from the recipient to see if they match up when this donor is claiming this deduction. Is the recipient actually saying he got it, or is the donor maybe uh, 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 lying to us? But... Um, and, and the courts have traditionally been very reluctant to interfere in tax collection matters, as I think has been raised on this panel. But I do think that there, there's some doubt about it. Again, they've got to show that it's narrowly tailored, that it's really fitting into some government uh, uh, interest. 
uh, and, and it would be examined under this uh, tougher standard. And of course, again, the uh, people being forced to disclose it uh, no longer have to uh, suggest that, well, uh, it's, it's only being given to the government uh, because as the court noted in, in Bonta, that can be enough. So I, 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 I would be hesitant to say Schedule B is clearly unconstitutional, but I, I do think there's a, a pretty strong argument that can be made that, that the government's going to have to show that it really needs the information, and whether it can, I think, is, is somewhat doubtful. That was a big question in that case that we all knew some justice was going to ask, so it was definitely something that was prepared for us. We addressed it in our brief, too, and we said pretty much that. It might be unconstitutional. Who knows? Um, is, Sam? Yes, uh, this would be a question for Tommy. Um, may have been answered, but we have from Anonymous. Um, Mysterious. <laughs> Good job. You listened to Professor Smith. I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll clean it up. Um, so suppose a student makes a joke uh, on Twitter on their phone on school grounds, but it's on their phone, so they're not expressing it to any other student. Um, essentially, does the on-campus grounds... Yeah. Uh, Qualification? Does that apply to everything said on their phone while they're there during school hours? It's it's an open question. I th I don't think it should because I think uh, as I mentioned, I think the test should be are are your fellow students a captive audience in some place they have to be to uh, under the rules of the school in class and recess whatever on school grounds. And again, if if you tweet out something on your phone. You're not forcing everyone sitting around you to also be on their phones. Now, you might have a different reason to discipline. If someone's on their phone, they're not paying attention to the algebra test, for, for sure. Um, but, uh, it, yeah, I, th I think uh, this, was, this was something I was not convinced by. The lawyer for Mahanoy and oral argument and in the briefs really stressed line drawing problems and said they'd be intractable. I really don't think they're as, they're as difficult um, as Mahanoy argued, especially because... It wasn't really relevant here, but there's another call, case called Frazier about vulgar speech, and the Supreme Court has pretty explicitly ca cabined that to only on-campus speech. So in other words, if they can draw the, the line for Frazier, I don't think it's any harder to, to draw a line for Tinker. And right next to Sam, Nicole. Fred Boning from the Daily Ripple, and this is for uh, Mr. Smith. Um, yesterday, I think, uh, Pennsylvania legislators um, subpoena are trying to subpoena all the voting records, um, including um, driver's licenses, uh, social security numbers, uh, voter history, all that, to give to a third party uh, vendor to investigate some sort of voter fraud or something. How does that relate to the California case? Well, I, I, I'm not sure of the exact nature of what they've subpoenaed. I just saw sort of the headlines on that, and I think that would make a difference in the arguments they claim for needing the information. But again, it, what it would come down to is, you know, does the state have a legitimate need for that information, and is the request narrowly tailored? If their request is we need to do a comprehensive audit of everybody voted and make sure they say they are who they, you know, we'd have to look at that. Is that is that how how true is that? Do they really need to get that information on on all voters? I do think the court would look at it also a bit differently in the sense that, and this is a point that Justice Scalia made in the in the case where he was quoted uh, for the part I quoted, uh, where voting in a, in a sense we talk about the right to vote, but in a way it's a power to vote. It's it's an official act. It exercises power over your fellow citizens, and so I think that that also might fit into a, a somewhat different 
category when we when we think about uh, uh, whether or not you have to disclose who you are, for example, by presenting an ID uh, to vote or, or things uh, along those lines. So it's a complex issue. I could see people invoking some of the principles of Bonta, but I doubt that Bonta has much controlling uh, influence over that, that scenario. Um, up, up here on the aisle there. Yeah, a little bit closer. I think it's sort of the same as the same question about Schedule B. I mean, uh, the argument, this, the courts are reluctant to get into tax matters. Uh, obviously, this is being floated as sort of a uh, tax uh, provision. We need to see what you know people's inflows and outflows are to see if they're maybe understating their income. Uh, I think that in the end, the court would uh, have to look at the question of, you know, does the government really need the information as it says it does? How, how serious is the uh, threat to, to individual, uh, uh, well, individual depositors and so on? So again, uh, most of these cases don't give us a clear answer to such, you know, extenuated hypotheticals. I do think the principles here will come in, in to play as to people's right to privacy, but I don't think it's a dispositive type case. I, th I would handicap any case that challenged what at least a court would essentially just say as a legitimate law enforcement purpose, whatever they say. If it's law enforcement that they're going after, it's going to be very hard to win that case unless it starts attaching to sort of political speech or something like that. Now, of course, in the Smith case, it applied to, you know, they were wanting this, the information from, I mean, in the AFP case, I mean, they wanted information from you know, a food bank. I mean, that was specifically mentioned in the opinion. Right? We need to know who the donors to a food bank are. So it implicated all even non-political or ostensibly political nonprofits. Um, I think I saw one in the middle there. Can you make sure that mic is on, Nicole, please? Is it on? Yep. Tom, uh, Tim Houseel from Delaware. Um, a lot of public schools, in fact, most public schools, if not all, have anti-bullying rules uh, that encompass you know, uh, speech that occurs off campus. They don't defer uh, just to the authorities to investigate and reprimand. And that most of those anti-bullying rules are broadly interpreted. Are there any cases in the pipeline dealing with that? I, I don't know of any specific cases. I think, generally speaking, under Mahanoy, those are likely to survive, but the devil may be in the details, as you said, of how broadly are they, are they interpreted. There, um, I, I think the, co the court certainly stressed that political speech or religious speech or speech with some kind of public value 
um, shouldn't, you know, shouldn't be like uh, lightly curtailed. And Justice Alito actually had some good kind of tough hypotheticals at oral argument of mixes between the two. Someone saying like, you know, the war, the war in Afghanistan is is awful, and we're imperialists. And and Joe's brother is one of those of those soldiers who's killing people on our behalf. So there's a mix of a political message, but also an insult at, at someone in the in the school. And and those are the tough tough cases that that schools are likely to deal with. But I think, um, you know, reading reading both the majority opinion and Justice Alito's concurrence, lower courts are hopefully going to be pretty deferential to speech with a with a political valence to it unless it's like clearly just a fig leaf to try to get away with bullying and, and not not sincere in that way. Um, and, I, and I think also any sort of speech where the notion is like it creates a, a hostile environment, but it's not particularly directed at another student. Again, that's that's pushing the line where it's arguably just generalized comments not not one of those narrow exceptions like bullying that that the Justice Breyer's opinion said would justify it. I have a question for Professor Laycock. Um, I remember when I read Smith in law school, and it seemed eminently sensible to me, and I think it did to Scalia when he wrote it too. Um, I mean, you kind of mentioned it in your in remarks, but what, I mean, what what really is wrong with that decision? Like. It, it, I mean, it's just a matter of misinterpreting the free exercise clause as a matter of originalism, or is there something more to it? Well, there, there's there's no originalism in the opinion. There's almost no text in the opinion. He says, you know, O'Connor's separate opinion says, look, it says you can't prohibit the free exercise of religion. Scalia agrees this was an exercise of religion. They prohibited it. What part do you not understand? Um, and he says, well, the text doesn't have to be interpreted that way. That's the entire textual argument. Um, and so, you know, every colony, including the most intolerant, like Massachusetts and Connecticut, once they came around to the idea of free exercise and said, uh, okay, Quakers can live here now, we're not going to hang you for being a Quaker any longer, um, shortly thereafter came to the idea of religious exemptions. They did it legislatively, they didn't have judicial review yet, but they exempted um, the Amish from swearing oaths and from serving in the militia. They exempted all the dissenting churches from paying the church tax until they finally repealed the church tax. Um, they exempted in a couple of colonies uh, Quakers from removing their hats in court. That was a famous incident with William Penn. Um, in Rhode Island exempted the Jewish community from the Christian incest laws and let them apply the Jewish rules instead. Um, because it didn't achieve the purpose of allowing free exercise. Right? If we, we won't kick you out for being Quaker anymore, but we'll kick you out for refusing to swear an oath. Or we won't let you vote because you refuse to swear an oath. Um, religiously motivated practices are an essential, integral part of the exercise of religion. And if you don't protect those, you haven't protected the exercise of religion. And you force people to suffer for conscience or they leave the state. A lot of people moved out of intolerant colonies in the colonial period. Um, you create more social conflict um, over religion. People aren't willing to surrender their religious practices just because the state says you have to. Um, so the Smith opinion wildly underprotected uh, free speech, uh, free exercise. And we have similar exemptions in the free speech context. The, the anonymous speech cases started out with if you are especially vulnerable, if you're the Socialist Workers Party, if you're the NAACP in Alabama in 1958, you get exemptions that other people don't get. There's nothing particularly novel about this. These are just as-applied challenges under the Free Exercise Clause. Thank you. Sam? 
from online audience. Yes, uh, Tommy, uh, you're apparently very popular. Uh, this is uh, also from Anonymous um, and cleaned up. Uh, what is your impression of the uh, current court's likelihood of ruling on, uh, say, an issue where uh, a school is monitoring uh, student social media accounts, like not just being on, not just following them on Twitter, but if they're blocked, uh, you know, requesting those the records of, of their posts from Twitter or requesting their Google searches. Um, do you think it would be any different than how the current court views uh, uh, the government? You know, the federal government mm -hmm. doing that. I, yeah, I think pre, sort of preemptive monitoring without a specific reason, just sort of scanning for anything objectionable. Um, what I, I think. Courts would look uh, very skeptically at that, uh, be uh, again, because the Supreme Court sort of tried to narrowly describe the type of justifications. Um, and we still have to remember the tinker, like on top of these other justifications, you still have the baseline tinker requirement of su a substantial disruption. So it seems like a school sort of monitoring something in advance, it's almost like they're looking for trouble or they're looking for something that they that they are hoping they can say, oh, this will cause a substantial disruption rather than actually waiting to see if the substantial disruption happens. And this, this was, these issues of surveillance and reporting were very much on uh, a lot of the Amici's mind, including our brief, that basically you don't want to create a culture that arguably happened in this case. Like how did the snap get to the cheer coach? It was apparently like a chain of screenshots and taking pictures of one phone screen with another phone screen. And, you know, there, there's an undercurrent of, like, other, other classmates kind of threw Brandy under the bus, and it didn't really, wouldn't have been an issue if they hadn't done that. And you don't necessarily want to <clears throat> incentivize students to go looking for offensive things people have said on their personal time and get them punished at school. So I would hope that, that, that courts will consider that when they're looking at these cases of, did this cause a disruption organically or was this kind of manufactured? Is there another one, Sam, or? No. Um, I have a question for Brad, because I have moot the case and they did a lot of things, but one of my favorite things about America's for Prosperity case, having worked on so many constitutional issues, it, almost everything is on summary judgment, unless it's a criminal defense or something. So when you're doing a gun case or campaign finance cases, it's just a lot of supposition about what might be true. Um, like in McCutcheon, we had this long discussion of how are people passing money through various things, and no discussion of does this actually happen. So what was the significance in this case that there was a trial? Well, I mean, it was very significant. In fact, uh, the first challenge uh, to this policy implemented by then Attorney General Harris was filed by my organization, the Institute for Free Speech, uh, then known as the Center for Competitive Politics. Uh, and uh, our, we had a certain petition pending at the Supreme Court that they did not hear. They waited until this case was decided. Then they granted our cert petition and immediately sent it back to the Ninth Court to follow Bonta and, and decide this. But the difference was that we didn't have a trial. Ours was on, on motion. And the trial did allow them to develop the record. And while in the end, the court's holding is quite broad. In fact, they say the statute's facially invalid. It's not just for these people. I have to think that the record was very influential. The fact that California did uh, let thousands of these forms out into the public realm. The fact that at trial, California's own witnesses said, oh, no, you know, we never really used that information to do audits, uh, has to influence just the general atmosphere at the court and, and the tone at the court. And I think that, by the way, one thing that that's, comes out of the case is that even 
that while you no longer have to show, for example, a history of specific retaliation, which the plaintiffs did here, and you don't have to show uh, uh, that the state's going to let it out into the to the public, uh, I think that if you if a court were to uphold another statute as being properly narrowly tailored, then a group could still, as Professor Laycock kind of suggests, ask for an as-applied exception on the basis of presenting evidence of harassment and on the basis of presenting evidence perhaps that the state wasn't very good at keeping information private. Yeah, the Pyrrhic victory in that case could have been that the only people who get donor privacy or, or organizations are those that literally demonstrate threats, uh, which was which was a con big concern. Am I seeing anyone? I have a question for, uh, Lake, for Professor Laycock, and I think that that would probably cause uh, uh, in the panel. Um, how surprised were you that it was nine zero? Or and do you have like does that give you hope and or is, was it kind of a Roberts getting people together thing? It's Roberts getting people together. I, I was not astonished. I was surprised. Um, you know the and particularly Justice Kagan is not hostile to free exercise, and, and I don't really think Justice Sotomayor is either. Although that's a little less clear. Um, there have been a number of unanimous decisions over the past 20 years protecting free exercise. The, the Muslim beard in prison was unanimous. The ministerial exception, minister can't sue her church for employment discrimination, was unanimous. Um, this little group in New Mexico used an hallucinogenic drug in their worship service under RIFRA was unanimous. Um, so it's not that the liberals are opposed to free exercise. It is that they have other values they care about more. Um, and to some extent, the Republicans do too, the conservatives do too, it's just a different list, right? So, um, so the liberals all dissented in the contraception cases. They have dissented in most of the gay rights cases, but not all. Um, you know, Hurley, the case about a gay rights group in, a, in, in the St. Patrick's Day Parade was unanimous. Um, and, and, but, the, but in the gay rights cases, I expected to get uh, dissent from uh, Kagan, Sotomayor, and, and Breyer. And we didn't, I think, principally because Roberts wrote it so narrowly uh, that you know, these facts will never arise again. Um, and Philadelphia can obviously fix it on the remand. They can draft something that is unambiguously exception-free, and then they will tee up the issue of whether to overrule Smith. Um, but there are some much broader things in the opinion that they didn't object to, right? including this isn't a compelling interest. They're not imposing their beliefs on anybody else. Uh, it doesn't matter that it's contracting. So yeah, I was surprised at the, at the unanimity. Thank you. So if there's no more questions, I am also out of questions. Uh, unless any of the panels have a question. No? Okay. Well, join me in thanking our panel. <clears throat>